Good. Praise the Lord. Joining God's quest. Joining God's quest. Everybody's looking for God, but did you know that God is looking for people? He's looking for something. Um, and for the past couple of, uh, for the last couple, I was going to say episodes, installments, whatever you want to call them, we've talked about the first one, the Lord is looking for the lost. Jesus came into the world to seek and save the lost. Last week, we talked about the fact that God's looking for people to stand in the gap. So we talked about the gap. And this morning, the Lord is looking for worshipers. And so we're going to talk about God's quest for worshipers. John chapter 4, verse 23. <clears throat> Jesus said, But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. So there you have it. The Father is seeking for people to worship, to worship in spirit and truth, to be true worshipers. So God is searching. He is looking. Now, we seek a searching God. You need to know that. That God is not static. He's not stationary. God is moving. But where is he moving? God is in search. He is in a hunt. He is searching, and so we seek a God who searches, which means that the quickest way to find God is to seek what he's searching for. If you want to join Jesus, if you want to find Jesus, find out what he wants and want what he wants. Search what he is searching for, and you will find him. Best way that I know to find the Lord. Worship has always been sacred to God because it's the bridge upon which the lost race of Adam will find him. So God's bridge that he has put in the world so that the lost can find him is worship. And Jesus laid that bridge of worship. In the Old Testament, had very elaborate schemes of worship and directions that God had given them that were um, all laid out with uh, elaborate symbolisms. And, but the people never really made contact. The first time people actually contacted God was when Jesus came. God came. God came because Jesus is God contacting us. So that bridge was laid and it was opened up, that bridge of worship. And Jesus revealed that the true worshipers, those that cross that bridge into communion and fellowship with God, they're not finding God in religious structures and religious forms, but they're finding him in the portable elements of spirit and truth, the portable elements of the heart. By spirit, by spirit, we mean your whole heart, mind, and emotional energy embracing in communion the Holy Spirit. So true worship involves spirit, which means it's a spirit or soul-to-spirit communion. It's contact with God. And truth. Truth means that we lay aside our beliefs, 
our false morals, false beliefs, and embrace Jesus' gospel as our reality. And so, if you're holding on to fake and false realities, you're going to have a hard time finding Jesus. True worshipers will meet him in spirit and in truth. Now, <clears throat> I know sometimes we think that worship is singing songs or worship is saying prayers. And it may seem odd to you. I know it did to me. When I first became a Christian, I had come out of the darkness of atheism. I had no religious experience. I had no church experience. In fact, I had, I had never entered a church before I did for the first time as a Christian. I didn't even get saved in a church. Got saved in my bedroom at night. The Holy Spirit drew me and revealed himself to me as Jesus. So I had no background. I had um, no idea of what worship was. I'd never opened a Bible. So when I first got saved and I met the Lord, worship to me was something that automatically happened when the Holy Spirit entered my life and the Lord showed me what it was. But I, I used to have this funny thought, you can imagine, an untrained mind. I thought, well, why does God want worship? Is it an egotistical thing? Does God just want to make sure we know what's right and that we're speaking and acknowledging what's right? Is it a need on his part to be affirmed, to be confirmed, to, to hear the truth of his glory and his righteousness repeated back to him? That's kind of an immature but a funny thought. You don't have to raise your hand, but you may have had that thought. Wondering, what is the value of worship? Is worship valuable because God needs it? Well, I'm here this morning to tell you that worship isn't about polishing God's image. Worship is about being together. Worship is about being together. God doesn't need his image polished. What he wants is us. God's greatest interest in worship. What is he looking to get out of it? God's greatest interest in worship is you. And your greatest interest in worship is him. Worship is being together. Hallelujah. Isn't that awesome? Embedded in the very concept of worship is God's love. It is the love of God reaching out to us through Jesus and us receiving that love and reaching back to him. He is interested in us. We are interested in him. He desires us. We desire him. Love is what that's all about. And it's embedded in the very heart of worship. So right off the bat, we need to elevate our concept of worship. It is not a religious cleansing it is not polishing the image of God. It's not something that we do to um, make God look good or make God sound good. If worship does not involve your heart touching God's heart and his heart touching you, then worship hasn't happened. Worship is about being together. So worship is founded <clears throat> in the love of God. 
You know, if there was no guidance about what worship should look or sound like, if there were no guidelines about worship, the heart would create them. I know that by experience because I got to worship Jesus before I ever knew what worship was or how it was done. It was just the reaction of my heart being touched by his love. So <clears throat> love, God's love will guide you in worship. When you're worshiping God and God's love is flowing and overflowing in your heart, you can't do anything wrong. The Holy Spirit's moving. You know, my childhood growing up was cradled in a very comforting sense of safety and security. And it was that way because it was reinforced by my father's, my dad's voice calling out to me when I was lost. It was reinforced by his hand being plunged down into a lake when I was drowning and grabbing me when I was underwater with vertigo and didn't know whether I was up or down and pulling me out. My whole childhood was surrounded and encased in a wonderful sense of security. I felt so safe and comfortable because of my dad. One day when I was little, I think I was about four, five, five years old, I was lost, got to wandering around in the neighborhood and got completely lost and the sun started to go down and it was dark and then I was really lost. And I was crying, wandering through the neighborhood and I remember neighbor ladies coming to the back door and saying, where do you belong? And I'm just blubbering and can't seem to get it straight and I heard my dad's voice off in the distance calling me. I was Nicky at those days. So I heard my dad's voice calling my name. And I just moved to the sound of his voice as it got louder and louder. That is such a powerful, such a powerful and impactful experience that if I ever get lost, my dad's already out looking for me. One day I was swimming in a lake, like I said. I don't know what happened, it was so weird. I was swimming and having a great time and the next thing I knew, I was trying to get up for air because I was underwater. I was trying to get up for air and I was going down instead of up. And I was all turned around and panic set in and just as I was about to open my mouth and take a big gulp in panic, shouting underwater, my dad's big hand came down through the water grabbed me by the back and just pulled me up with one hand, pulled me out of the water. Again, when I became, my dad was an atheist. He didn't die an atheist, by the way. He died a believer, and he's with Jesus. But uh, um, so I, I grew up in a churchless, godless, but a wonderful home, a wonderful family. Those experiences taught me what security looked like, what it felt like. So when I met my Heavenly Father, I already knew. I already knew it was about love. I already knew it was because He loved me. That night that I gave my life to Jesus, I heard His voice and I was lost. 
calling me. It only took a matter of about one to two minutes. I went from being totally lost and on my way to a devil's hell to a child of God seated at the right hand of the throne. My mind was blowing up with the transforming change. That's worship. That's worship. Hallelujah. The experience of true worship, it begins when you focus all of your praise for God's holy attributes and his sovereign power into the fact that he loves you. For worship to take off and fly and you really are worshiping God, you praise him for his faithfulness, his goodness, his power, you acknowledge his holiness, his righteousness. All those things are wonderful. They are kind of the, if you will, the, the context. But when you take off, when the door opens, when you walk in and he's there, it happens because you focus all of those facts about God on the one overwhelming fact, he loves you. With all of those qualities, through all those attributes, Jesus loves you. And when you embrace that, there's something about agape. They used to say years ago, it's better felt than telt. It's hard to talk about, but it is an experience that speaks for itself. And I can tell by the bobbing heads this morning that you know what I'm talking about. Hallelujah. The fact that God loves you is the door through which our singing, our praise, our prayers actually pass through into the experience that the Lord is searching for. He's wanting to see who's showing up at that door. His door is open. He stands and he knocks at that door. But who shows up in the doorway? Who lets him in and communes with him? It's the ones that take all that they know about him and they focus it on, he loves me. That opens the door, Terry. That brings us into his presence. <clears throat> what I'm talking about this morning, true worship, worship, true worship, explains the church in the world. If you've, people are trying to figure out what's the business of the church in the world. What's our purpose? What's our mission? And no, no matter how many pastors you ask or thinkers and Christians, you're going to get all kinds of different answers. And they all probably will be right on some level or another. But there's one central theme, one central purpose that explains what the church is doing on planet Earth. Why are we here? And that word is worship. And I want to share with you why. Early on in the book of Acts, in chapter 15, the apostles all got together. Paul had come back from one of his world tours. And they were trying to decide what should the church look like. They were trying to determine what does God want the church to look like, how should it be situated in the world, and how should it operate in society? And so the arguments were going back and forth, and some of the apostles were saying, well, it should look like the Jewish practices of the law. They should, we should continue to practice all those feasts and festivals 
and almost said Festivus, that wouldn't be it. But um, we, they, we should maintain that Jewish culture of the law. And uh, Peter stood up and he argued against that. He said, look, none of our fathers nor us came to God, met him through the law. So why would we drag that in to this glorious, beautiful new covenant that the Savior has brought to us? So Peter was arguing against the keeping of the law, but it wasn't the keeping of the law, nor was it the avoiding of the keeping of the law, the avoiding of legalism, that really defined the purpose of the church. It wasn't until the apostle James stood up and he referenced Amos. In the book of Amos, chapter 9, he reads verse 11 and verse 12. And after he reads it, he makes the point and he sits down and that ends the argument. It settles the issue. Immediately they all recognized that is why we are here. That is what we should look like. That is our function in society. So let me read it. Let me read to you what Amos read to them that settled the issue. The prophet Amos, anointed with the Holy Spirit, spoke as God spoke through him and said, after these things, and he's talking about times of backsliding, times of falling away from God, He's talking about the time that began on the day of Pentecost after Jesus rose from the dead and the church was born. So he says, after these things, I will return. And he returned on the day of Pentecost, didn't he? After these things, I will return, says the Lord, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Wow, what is the tabernacle of David? Apparently it was a tabernacle that meant a lot to God and it fell down and it slipped into a state of ruin. But Jesus said, I'm going to come. When I come back, I'm going to raise it. I'm going to reopen its doors. I'm going to rebuild the tabernacle of David. And as a result, the whole world will begin to come through its doors and find me. Wow, the tabernacle of David. Well, I know what the tabernacle of Moses is. We all know about the tabernacle of Moses, right? The outer court and the holy place, and the most holy place, and the brazen altar, all the bloody sacrifices, and the whole big army of priests going through all of these religious ceremonies, and, and when it's all over with, nobody's really contacted God. It's all symbolic. It's true, it's meaningful, but it's pointing to something. But God ordered his people to follow that prescription and that was their worship. Follow that prescription and get ready. I'm coming. In the middle of the observance and the practice of worship through the tabernacle of Moses, something phenomenal happened called the tabernacle of David. In fact, there was this boy who became king. He was different on every level. He was very much a man like every other man. He loved a war. I don't know about so much men today, but when we grew up, all men liked to fight. 
We, I grew up fighting. We grew up wanting to fight. We liked all of that, right, Danny? Yeah, we're drawn. <laughs> we're <laughs> so that was true in David's day. He dreamed, dreamed of conflict. And, uh, and he was an adulterer. You know, not all men are adulterers, but the potential's there. David was a man in every way, just like all men, right? And he, he committed murder, he committed adultery, he covered his tracks and lied. But he was also not like anybody else in that in spite of those things, he, as a youth, had developed a heart for God. He loved God. Out there in the fields as a little shepherd boy, no tabernacle, no going through all of that, just out there singing songs, writing them down, worshiping the Lord, and developing a relationship with God. He was off the reservation. He went off script with his worship. He discovered that God loves him and wants to have fellowship with him. He was a New Testament thinking guy back in an Old Testament concept. So through a series of events, God calls him to be king of Israel. And after a long ordeal, he becomes king of Israel. Did you know that when David became king of Israel, he sets up his kingdom in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. But a handful of miles to the northwest lies the city, the, city, the town of Gibeon. And on the hill of Gibeon is where Moses' tabernacle sits. And all Israel would go to all the annual festivals, and they'd all go through that tabernacle on Mount Gibeon to worship Jehovah God. But David said, you know, now that I'm king, I can do what I want. So that's going to drive me crazy. I, had, I acknowledge it, I honor it, I honor that all those symbolic things God gave Moses, but something inside of me says there's a more direct route. So you know you've got the outer court, you've got the holy place, and then you've got the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is. That's where God rested between the cherubim on the golden seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And only once a year would the high priest go in after tremendous ritual and cleansing, go in to make intercession for the people. They couldn't go in. You, you couldn't go in and say, wow, the ark, God's there. What's up? What's happening? Explain yourself. There was none of that, none of that conversating going on. Once a year, though. So David said, that, that's just not going to get it. So he steals the ark. He goes to Gibeon, gets the ark, and he arranges to have priests towed it up to Mount Zion. He pitches a tent in his backyard. He gets a bunch of priests. He said, I'm giving you some new orders. He brings the ark in. No building, no holy place, no most holy place. Unceremoniously plops the ark down on a folding table under a tent and says, now we're going to worship God. We're just going to go right to the ark and I'm going to... He put the thing up in his backyard so 24-7 he could just creep out of bed or leave what he was doing and just go out into the tent and just fall before the Lord. 
Oh, God, you're awesome. You are wonderful. He, God must have loved that because the Ark of the Covenant was known to kill if you touched it. Thank you. That's right. Those priests went in with a rope around their ankle because if they weren't perfectly right with God, you touch the ark, boom, you drop dead, they pull you out, bury you. That's right. The first attempt. Uh, thank you, Mark. Who's preaching this message? You or me? So at any rate, you're, you're, oh no, you're right. First attempt to take the ark up, Yuza and Ohio. You know, Ark staggered, Ohio reached out, grabs the ark, and yeah, he was like a burnt Pop-Tart. So at any rate, David's got the ark under the tent, and 24-7, he's got a, a number of priests. He says, you are to get around the ark in this tent, and you are to play music and sing and worship God seven days a week, 24 hours a day. There's the ark surrounded by worship that is nonstop, and it goes on for about 37 years. It's the golden age of Israel. David is king. The ark is in his backyard. People can come into the tabernacle of David, worship God in the presence of the ark. Nobody's dropping dead because somebody's heart understood what God wanted. And that holiness... That holy path to Zion was paved in the king's heart. Hallelujah. God ain't going to kill anybody if that heart understands what he wants and comes repentingly hungry, thirsty for the presence of God because that's what Jesus has been searching for. He is searching for true worshipers. He wants to commune with us. He doesn't want us to get it right. He wants us to get him. Hallelujah. And he will make us right. Somebody say amen. amen. Now, a little fascinating story. During those 37 years, the glorious days of the Ark of the Covenant, guess what? They didn't shut down the tabernacle. Mount Gibeon was still open for business. They still had, they went through all the ceremonies. They still had the Sabbath keeping. They still followed all the rituals. So you have simultaneously parallel worship going on. But guess what? They're, do, they're going through all of the prescribed rituals on Mount Gibeon, the tabernacle of Moses. Guess what? There's no ark in it. You ever been to church and there was no ark in it? You ever gone, they sang the right songs, preached out of the Bible, everything? No ark, no presence, no God. Do you think that happens a lot? That's probably a big reason why a number of you are here. Now, I don't want to, I'm not, don't want to be proud or anything because trust me, we've, we've gathered plenty of times in the presence of the Lord. We didn't bother to wait upon his presence and draw him. But that's what it's all about. God allowed that to go on. And I'll tell you, simultaneously parallel going on in the world today right now, there's the Christian religion and its prescription of worship. And then there's hungry and thirsty people like David. And they are, they are coming to the Lord as true worshipers. You get to decide. Nobody can decide for it. And let me say this. You don't make that decision by the church you go to. Honey, you can go to Presbyterian church and be a true worshiper. 
You don't have to go to a church that advertises we're spirit-filled and the gifts of the spirit moving and all that. Honey, I've been to plenty of Pentecostal charismatic services over the decades, and, uh, and the presence of the Lord wasn't the centerpiece of what was going on. Revival is not a new thing. Revival is the realignment with the old thing. Hallelujah. It's a recovering of the path. So it brings us to today. I just thought you should understand this final note about the Ark of the uh, or, uh, Tabernacle of David before we move on. Listen to what Amos prophesied. I will rebuild the ruins of the Ark of David. I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. The apostles knew when James stood up and read that, they understood. We are in the middle of God rebuilding and reopening the tabernacle of David. We are supposed to be the reopening of the tabernacle of David so that the Gentiles, you think a year before they would have been open to Gentiles? Absolutely not. They weren't even open to Jews that weren't absolutely perfect. So God said, my church is in the world as the tabernacle of David. The New Testament church is the tabernacle of David reopened. And that is the only way people get saved. The way they truly get saved is they're brought into the presence of God. If we don't have a tabernacle of David experience, when we gather, no wonder people won't get saved. It is the rebuilding of true worship that makes a context for the lost to be saved because it brings the presence of God. I want to wrap this up because we need to pray and respond. You know, something about what I'm doing right now irritates me. I'm just going to be honest with you. Sometimes, do you ever get irritated with yourself? I bug myself. I irritate myself. Teaching on worship is like marriage counseling. There's nothing fulfilling about it. No matter how right it is, might be right, might be just the, might be just the information you need. Marriage teaching on worship is like marriage counseling. There's no fulfillment in it. It's all instruction and encouragement about how to hold the one you love without the holding. Does that sound like church today? All instruction and encouragement and admonition about how to hold the one we love without doing any real holding. Nobody goes to marriage counseling to have a great experience. Uh, let me take it a step further and say, you didn't marry to learn about marriage. I didn't marry my beloved so I could learn about marriage. I married my beloved to hold, live, and love together. And if all we do is talk about worship, admonish, and instruct, I can't wait to get out of the counselor's office and get busy with some holding, with some living, with some loving. Do you understand? What is a Christian if they have no desire to hold God, 
If they have no desire to love and live with God, what is a Christian? Just someone who's trapped like a gerbil in an endless pinwheel of counseling and instruction. There's no fulfillment in getting it right. There's fulfillment in doing it. There's no comfort in knowing that you believe the right things. It's connection. Worship is being with God. That, that bridge of worship that Jesus laid down, worship is not the toll. Worship is the bridge. Worship's not the price you pay so that you can get across. Let's get that out of the way. Here's my $1.25 or whatever the toll is. Here's my worship. Now, no, worship is the experience. Worship's the bridge, not the toll. I am sincerely weary of church services. This is me talking from the heart. I'm absolutely, totally, sincerely weary of church services filled with admonition, instruction, toll paying. I want to cross over. I want to hold and I want to be held. I want to experience God together with you. That's what I want. When I come on a Sunday, I'm here right now. Let me tell you, I'm, I get nothing out of instruction. I could be sitting here listening to myself talk. Oh, that's a good point. Nothing. I want to experience God's presence, and I want to do it with you. It's called holding. It's called getting on that bridge. Praise the Lord. I'd like you to close your Bible and stand with me this morning. I'd like to have us take an opportunity and worship the Lord together. Come before him and say thank you for your love. Lord, I love you. I am thirsty for you. I desire to have you in my life. If you are drowning, God's plunging a reaching down hand. Worship will make it, make you take hold. If you're lost, instead of just wandering through the neighborhood, he's calling. Worship, run to the voice. Go to the voice. You know what? Let's do this. We're going to close right now, but I'd like you to come and just crowd up here around the front. Praise the Lord. You don't have to touch anybody if you don't want to. But I'd just like us to get some proximity this morning. Just kind of, if you want to sit, you can come and sit up on the front rows. But I, I just think it'd be great if we could just sort of be together and just worship.